welcome to episode 6 of season 7 of Delving Into Dance. This week you'll hear from Belgium-based Mitta Invaxen. But before we get into today's episode, I have an appeal. We all love something that is free, but projects like this take time, money and passion. We are currently raising money to transcribe the rich archive of Delving Into Dance episodes. These episodes include Meryl Tankard, Raphael Bonicella, Judith Mackerel, Damien Gillet, Deborah Jowett, David McAllister and a whole heap of others. This archive is rich and full of amazing stuff and we want to make it more accessible for deaf audiences. You can help contribute to make this a reality by contributing some money, big, small, whatever it is, you know that this money will be spent well to continue to celebrate the diversity of dance. This episode explores the incredible work of Mita Ingvarsson. Her work challenges conventional understandings of gender and sexuality. As a result, this interview covers so much territory, including nudity, war pornography, sensuality and sexuality, as well as censorship. I started by asking, where did dance start? It's always a good question, where does it start? It's, um, I think I have different stories in my head when I think about it. I started actually by dancing hip-hop, funnily enough. And, uh, and I think uh, I saw this one film when I was very young, um, which is called Flashdance, which is a story about a young um, working class girl who wants to be a ballet dancer. And she's working in a metal factory, and at the same time she's trying to do this audition, and she manages to get in. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's in a way, um, I think there's something uh, that I, because in this audition that she then does, she's dancing her own dance, which has nothing to do with ballet, and they take her anyhow. And so I think that this, when I saw this film, I was like, I was totally impressed by the fact that she could do it uh, also without having the background and the, let's say, the, the cultural background as well um, to be able to actually become a, a professional dancer. Um, so I think at already at that point, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, make it and break through this like impossibility of, of being a, an artist, there's no artist in my family. So to be an artist in my family uh, is totally fine, but it was not necessarily a given uh, way. Um, and then I started by doing this very popular, I mean, in a way, uh, I was dancing in a group of people who were dancing hip hop. And we were doing shows and from very early on, uh, public uh, presentations of this um, hip hop group. Um, and uh, and I quite quickly found out that I really wanted to to do it more seriously. So, so in that sense, uh, I've been doing ballet class since I was thirteen, but not since I was five. So in that sense, it started a, a little later. Yeah, amazing. And then, yeah. so what was the jump from? You know, obviously, a lot of people have that dream, and to actually realize that dream can be quite difficult. So, how did that happen for you? I think for me it was when I was 18 I decided to leave Denmark because I was, um, I felt, because dance in Denmark is still very actually traditional in the sense of it's, it's very connected to technique 
And I knew as I started a bit late with ballet that I would never be a ballerina. And Denmark has a strong tradition in the Bonneville ballet tradition and with a strong uh, connection to classical ballet. And the dance scene, even the modern dance scene, is still somehow influenced by that and that history. And I had a feeling that I needed to get out of the country and, and away. And I moved to Amsterdam when I was 18. And I studied there for one year. And then I encountered the the um, work of Anna-Theresa de Kiersmaker, who's a Belgian choreographer, that I um, got very um, inspired and um, uh, stimulated by and I found out that she had a school called Parts in Brussels and so I tried to to come here as fast as possible and I managed and I spent four years here studying between um, 2000 and 2004 so it's been a while and that was kind of a place where you could train it was a lot of uh, really physical training also ballet training and and let's say also quite actually thorough um, dance training, but also a lot of uh, theory, a lot of uh, more thinking practices, a lot of more conceptually oriented um, practices uh, that I connected very much to, but also improvisation and theater. It was a kind of broad um, education and also including choreography studies. So I was basically making my my work um, when I was 20, 22, 23. And your work is very connected to ideas and thinking, uh, I guess, about social structures and more broadly. Did that yeah. kind of, I guess, come from that schooling as well? I think it, it. I was trained like that in that school, but I already, I bought my first book called Dance and Philosophy. I think I found it in a bookstore when I was 16. So I think it's also something that I was generally um interested in also very early on. I encountered this woman when I was 15 who was actually um, connected to the Laban school, so the Laban notation system, and she had lots of um, techniques around improvisation also. So I was quite early in encountering also quite complex uh, ways of thinking about movement. And uh, in a way you could say movement philosophy was, was quite early something that I thought, oh, this actually I'm very interested in understanding. And uh, and so in a way, uh, the school uh, was definitely the right place for me because there I had philosophy classes and sociology classes and uh, dance history classes that were more conceptually oriented. So it was um, for me it was a very good place to to develop those interests that I had at the time. Yeah, amazing. Can we talk about your work, Seven Pleasures, uh, as a starting point because it's one of your works that I have yes. seen. Yes. Um, and what this work explores. So I was really interested in the placement of the naked body amongst the clothed bodies in the audience as a starting point mm-hmm. and that exploration. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, Seven Pleasures is actually the second uh, piece in a series of four called The Red Pieces, and they're all dealing with sexuality and nudity, but as a social and political question and not just as something intimate and private. And in a way, the whole questioning in that series has a lot to do um, with thinking about how the public and the private space has started to disintegrate. And for me, this is connected to how the internet and social media have also kind of created a permeability between the our intimate spaces and our public, what we share on a 
social network or what we share on a, in a public space. Um, so in a way, for me, it was a way to try to think, okay, in a theater, there is a stage place and then there's the public. And if we want to blur or speak about how these borders between private and public or performer and audience, if we want to speak about how those borders are blurring, then we have to start in the audience and we have to uh, do something in the audience, which would be unusual to do in the audience. So everyone takes off a jacket or a sweater when they sit down, but very few people take off more than that. So it was also a way of trying to just continue this movement that is anyway happening when you move into the theater, where you start to take off clothes and the performances just kind of keep on going until they have nothing on left. And it, and it was also a, the question about how naked bodies are not only images that you see from far on stage, but it's actually also bodies that you feel and that you almost um, get touched by when they have to pass by you um, in the audience seating. So it had to do with with trying to think about those things. It was quite interesting because the audience in the, I saw the work twice and the audience in one of them found it inherently uncomfortable. You heard the, yeah. you know, the coughs, the shuffling of the seats, the awkward laughter. But we are surrounded by such vast amounts of nudity to various forms in the public sphere within mm. advertisement and then within our own personal and intimate lives. Mm. And people would be quite, were quite comfortable once the bodies moved to the stage, but to be mm. in such close proximity with a naked body was seemed to be um, what was so confronting, which I found really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think in a way, uh, yeah, so I think that the, in a way we're used to exactly looking at naked bodies, but that are polished, that are retouched, that are made into images, that are made on a distance, that are also standardized according to certain ideals of how bodies should look on billboards. Um, but in a theater, this, this uh, let's say, liveness of the body already on stage, I think is can be discomforting or can be confronting in a different way. And surely... When you come very close, um, it can be even more confronting. So I also, uh, the first piece of the series is called 69 Positions. <clears throat> and this is actually a piece where I am performing in a public who's moving around me. So it's more like a lecture performance where I'm talking and moving and I'm naked as well for most of the time, not the whole thing. Um, and there I'm really in two centimeters proximity to many of them um, throughout the entire two hour duration of it. And I know that in that piece, it really creates a lot of comforts, discomforts, um, different forms of humor, different forms of distancing, different forms of coming close also and sharing something in the moment. So I think um, in a way, I think we're so used to looking at a certain type of bodies in public space, but actually not this totally normal naked body that is how it is and not how it is after it's been remade. And does it disrupt the relationship between the audience and the dancer or the audience and the body? That nudity? I think um, what we try to do in the piece is to really deal with the kinds of images that we're creating of the naked body. So we were trying to be very careful with what kind of images we would propose. 
and uh, so in a certain way the, the the second image in to come where uh, in uh, sorry i'm mixing up now in seven pleasures where they are creating one big mass that kind of traverses the space and encloses the furniture in the environment and like there we are actually imagining being a biotechnological liquid that can actually traverse the space but that can also move up um, furniture and envelop it and swallow it and it's a way to try to get away from relating in a human way where you are immediately identifying okay this is a breast or this is a genital part or this is something else but you just kind of try to experience yourself as flesh or as a thing or as a liquid or um, and it kind of transforms uh, how close you can come to people that you're not necessarily in an intimate relationship with uh, in, in real life. Um, so in a way the, the work was a lot about trying to invent these kind of um, alternative sexual practices uh, which are also image practices, so they're physical practices that we do together, but they're actually also image practices because it's a lot about how um, it, the image, it is a theater performance finally that people look at, so it's also still creating an image of the body. And and we try to to work on this relationship between the qualitative experience of doing the image and actually doing the image and having people look at it as well. And when you're performing and you've got an audience looking at you as a body, a naked body exposed, does it feel different personally than if you are fully clothed? Or is there a difference for you in performing or is it something that you are... I have been doing it for many years by now. So for me, it's not, I don't, um, of course it's different, but it's not, uh, yeah, and it is challenging. It's not nothing to do it, uh, but it's not, I, for me, it's not, um, it, it corresponds with the interest and the questions that I have. And so it, makes sense to do it and that's actually as far as I, I go. Sometimes I think um, some of the pieces I have now done more um, and there comes maybe a moment on a personal level where I have had many, many, many experiences with performing something and, uh, and so I wonder um, is my level of experience now in correspondence with what the audience actually gets to experience? Because I am very become almost like too skilled in uh, in knowing how to to create the situation. And then I also know once in a while something happens that makes it that I totally have to let go of everything I think I know about the show and just kind of go with the flow and see what happens and let anything um, evolve as it does. So. Is there an example of that, like letting everything go? I mean, I think, of course, the, in, in uh, 69 positions, when other people get naked in the room, it always gets a little tricky, and it hasn't happened many times, so I've done the piece many times, but it has only happened two or three times that people have actually undressed, and in these moments, there is a moment that I have to renegotiate quite a lot about how do I then deal with people who are now also naked and not only me as the performer of the piece. So these things are um, quite disturbing, but there are also other unexpected um, issues. But it's difficult to say uh, exactly. It has to do with dynamics of groups. It has to do with how people um, effectively act together and what this does to the situation. And sometimes I have a feeling that I can very easily communicate with people, and other times I have a feeling that there is a a border or a wall that I'm up against. So these things are quite difficult to, 
to control actually and that's live performing and that's of course what makes it so interesting to do uh, it's not just a thing that you capture once and then it will be there every time you do it so this this is interesting of course to keep experimenting with and of course your works have toured extensively and have taken place in different i guess social and political kind of contexts at different times of year years after they've been made does that change the reception of your work as well or the way that you might think about your work i i think with 69 positions for instance i have experienced that it's actually about each group so each night it's very different so where you think it would maybe be related to cultures so when you do it in northern europe it's different from southern europe or uh, but actually it feels more as if it's connected to the specific composition of that group that evening. Um, and that's very interesting to me that it actually is about a certain singular situation that's composed with the audience, which is a specific audience at each time. So on one hand, I, I experienced that. And then, of course, on the other hand, I think um, culturally there is something in the work with nudity that 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 also comes out of a certain history that I have in my body um, and which means that I have a certain relationship to these questions that may be in Australia or instance not the same so uh, so of course there's also a friction when you then present these works in, in places where the the ideas around nudity are maybe in a different place um, than, than where they are made from so um, yeah and in terms of work that's maybe produced you know you've originally created you know, many years ago, and then a, um, in a process of remounting it or it's being re-performed or you look back on it, does your relationship change to any of your works? Or do you think, oh, you know, I didn't think about that at the time, but that's really clear and obvious to me now, or things like that? I mean, actually, I read it uh, to come extended, which is a piece I did. It's the fourth piece in this series uh, called The Red Pieces. And um, it was originally made for five dancers in 2005, and now I remade it with 15 performers in 2017. So this was quite a revisiting because it was also a complete uh, recomposing of the entire piece. It's not the same piece anymore, but it was very interesting for me to feel exactly this. Okay, how has my relationship to this material actually changed? Because we still do more or less the same things. But we do them differently, it's composed differently, and it, I think, also means other things today than it did um, 12, 13 years ago. So I think that there is a, a change, and in that specific case, it had to do with, um, actually, I was very busy with identity questions at the time. I was also very busy with the, the family structure as a kind of dominant structure and the idea of the orgiastic as a resistance to this dominant family structure. So we were five people doing these orgiastic uh, sculptures. And uh, and today my questions are much more social and political and they're much closer related to this issue around the, the private and the public and what happens to our private spaces once we are exposing our most intimate thoughts and desires on on social media and that the what happens to our physical interrelation to each other and also what happens to to sexual practice after the internet has exploded you know the circulation of pornography and so there's many changes that have happened in between that makes it that I see the work and I think about the work very differently today than I did 12 years ago and of course I also got 12 years older so I also maybe changed my 
by way of looking at these images and, and the ways of thinking about them. In terms of that online space, um, 21 Pornographies kind of explores this, I guess, um, the dynamics between desire and sex and power. Can you talk about this work a little bit and where that emerges from? Actually, it came out of several things, but one of the things was that after doing 69 Positions and 7 Pleasures, I started to have many people questioning me in regards to whether this is pornography, whether I consider it pornographic or not, whether I'm working on pornography, whether I'm interested in pornography. And uh, and I was not really busy with those questions in those two works. I was more busy with just sexuality as a kind of expanded field that is also a social and political field. And um, it made me think that I, there's something within the question of pornography that I have to address if it's something that comes back to me so much. So I also like that my work, in a way, speaks to the world. It speaks like the public is speaking back to me. So it's also a kind of... Um, way that the, the work speaks back to me, so I, I don't necessarily know everything about what my work communicates, uh, so I know how I make it, but I don't necessarily know what it does to people when they look at it. So, of course, when I talk to people afterwards, I I sometimes also reshape or rethink the perspective from, from where it was made, and then I think those works were also quite... Um, in the line of the kind of sexual liberation movement of the 1960s, a kind of liberatory energy that I wanted to research and understand because in 69 Positions I really look at historical works as well. And 21 in a way was a moment where I thought, okay, well, I have to also look into the, the darker sides of sexuality. I have to look at the um, sites where power is involved in an explicit way, because this is also where it becomes clear uh, how sex and politics are interrelated. So, for instance, in that work, I'm also dealing with um, war pornography as a phenomena that exists that clearly um, connects the sexual with the political in a very outspoken or uh, clear way. Uh, so war pornography is this uh, two th it's several things, but it's partly how soldiers in war, they film war brutalities that are not necessarily sexual, but they could be, but they're not necessarily sexual. And then they distribute this image material on secret networks in a way that is comparable to how um, illegal pornography, for instance, could also be uh, distributed. And so for me, it's a way of trying to understand how... Um, yeah, how brutality and war crimes are somewhat also connected to um, the pleasure of torturing or the, the desire that comes out of actually being in a powerful um, position, mm. which is a very um, delicate and difficult area uh, to look at. And, and so um, much of that imagery came out of the Iraq war and uh, horrific kind of torture... Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was, as you say, borderline sexualized, but was also yeah. just so, so degrading. Yeah, yeah. But it gave but it power. The, but the sexualized torture has existed also in the Balkan Wars. It has existed in the Viking uh, brutalities. So it's it's like a it's a it's an old historical form of violation, which has to do with a, an abuse of power, which clearly relates to. Um, yeah, how pleasure and desire is connected to this abuse of power. And I think today, I mean, that's what we have seen with the whole Me Too movement. We see that there is a, a real societal 
question and issue that is concerning exactly this point. And maybe it's not to the point of what we would call war crimes, but there are, are sexual crimes also that um, have been committed. And I think the fact that they are now um, coming out or becoming visible, I think, hopefully, um, can change also these structures of power. And I think my work, in a way, has, has to do with thinking about this. What kinds of structures of power are in place? How are they related to sexuality, how are they related to gender roles, how are they related to equality, and, and also how are they yeah, somehow um, related to also the, the abuse of power, which is a, a, a difficult question. But in the performance, I'm also making a fiction because uh, it's not a documentary uh, piece. So it's a piece that also looks at um, Marquis de Sade. So it actually looks at the history of pornography as it existed in, in literature uh, through uh, Marquis de Sade. It also looks at um, how pornography existed in Denmark in the 1970s as part of the kind of liberatory um, movement, sexual liberation movement, but also as part of the, the commercialization of sex. So it was the moment where these pornographic films were made, but they were also circulated all over Denmark in movie houses in many different places with actors that were not necessarily actually um, porn actors, but also just actors playing in other films at the time as well. So this, this um, yeah, let's say the piece has to do with kind of looking at a historical lineage, which is, of course, one that is connected to different forms of brutality or different forms of... Um, forms of interlinking desire and power, and not always in negative terms. The piece is quite dark and looking more on the dark side of things, but it's not only that. It also has to do with the imaginary, and you could also think it connected to some BDSM practices, for instance, where the um, you could say where the putting yourself in a submissive position could also be a liberatory thing. So it's not necessarily to say that playing with power can also produce pleasure and it's not necessarily the same form of violation as when someone is forced to do something they don't want to do. So I think the, the work in a way also deals with those layers of, of complexity. It's quite, it's, it's not, um, yeah, not an easy, um, topic to to simply delineate mm. and obviously like sexuality and sexual practices are so historically politicized they change in context so obviously the whole sexual liberation um, periods of time and then censorship or people reverting back to quite yeah. um, traditional ways of viewing relationships or family structures so it's this constant shift and change and it's always very hard to know which way it's heading, I guess. Where do you think this kind of moment is at the moment in terms of the history of sexuality? I mean, it's, it's difficult because you could say that the sexual liberation movement of the 60s was such a big um, movement. Uh, and in a way, you could also say that it failed because we didn't invent other structures and we didn't manage to transform as uh, the people who were protesting at the time were trying to do. So in that sense, I have my hopes off now for the Me Too movement and the kind of change. But I feel already that it has blown over, you know, like it was very strong six months ago and now already 
we hear about it um, less and it's less discussed. So it's already, it's like, let's say the wave of it is already, you know, over. But I still think that there is a different awareness which has been born, which wasn't there before. And I think with this awareness, um, there is a possibility in general to really try to transform structures and not, in a way, because the personal stories are very important, but what is even more important in order for the personal stories to change is that we try to think structurally, how can we actually do things in a different way? So I'm, I'm interested in thinking about this. I, I know that there are many other people who are too. Um, so I think in a way we're in a time where the, where the possibility of this, this thinking through how structures could potentially change is really something that we have to do. And it's quite essential that we do now because there is this energy for it. Um, and then I think there's still many different ways to do it. You can do it collectively, you can do it on your own, you know, like trying to also um, uh, mobilize um, things as, in a larger uh, context, which I think is necessary. Hmm. Last year in Australia, um, they had the um, same-sex marriage passed. So, you know, gay and lesbian couples can get married. And so now yeah. there's this pressure on um, people in relationships to get married. And so yeah. all the other ways that potentially relationships are being done quite differently in queer communities yeah. now has a structure that it can fit into, which is far yeah. more heteronormative and far more, you know, traditional in that sense as well. So it's kind of like, yes, it's a win in some respects, but then there's also this pushback and expectation yeah. that now you can live traditional lives and can live lives the same as everybody else. It's just that. You know, your yeah. relationship partner is different than everybody else's. Yeah, no, and one thing is, of course, to have rights. So I think everyone should have the same rights. So in that sense, it's a good move. But of course, there is also really the question of the normative and how to get out of it and how also to value other forms of relationships and other ways of living together and other ways of trying. And it's not easy because it's the school system. It's the, I mean, there's a whole, it's a whole system that um, that makes it that, that that certain structures are easier to follow than others. So, um, yeah. But anyway, I think for me, anyway, equality is one of the the between men and women, but also equality between races, equality between. I mean, it's it's a, there is something about equality that I think is a place to insist and to not accept this, um, you know. Uh, uneven, abusive power, um, abusive um, uh, structures. So I think that's that's a, a good place to to start. Historically, in dance, there's always been a power imbalance, in some respects, between the dancers and the audience, where the audience, you know, looks towards places their gaze towards the dancers who become the object of desire or dance for. The audience's pleasure. How does your work, I guess, challenge some of those uh, historical notions of audience and dancer? I mean, I think exactly what you just said, the fact that this relation has been there, um, but in a way, very often in an unspoken way, like the fact that the sexual undertone or the desiring undertone that much, a lot of dance is operating through, um, for me, it was very important to make it explicit, to actually say, okay, part of what is happening here 
is actually a question of desire. It is a question of um, being stimulated physically. And then there's many different levels or layers of this happening, of course. And in my work, it was about saying, well, we have to recognize that these underlying structures are there. And if we recognize it and even expose it explicitly, then maybe we can actually look for something else or we can question ourselves in how we look in this particularly sexualized way. So if you see sexual bodies, it's quite difficult to say, oh, these are not sexual bodies. Whereas when you see nicely dancing bodies, which still gives you a erotic undertone, uh, it's quite easy to say, ah, but this is not about that. This is about movement or abstract geometry or shapes or space or music or I don't know what. So I, I think for me, it was important to, to in a way, pinpoint this uh, thing. And perhaps also, I think there's many other ways that, that dance also operates. It's also kinesthetic, physical. Not The, the body is not necessarily um, only sexual, of course. And the way the body communicates and dances is definitely not necessarily about desire only. So you can also have dances that are not appealing to, to your desire, um, but more to your disgust or to your political awareness or to other mm. sides. But maybe these things are not so disconnected that the other thing. Um, but yes, yeah, so my work in a way, at least this series of works, because I've done quite a lot of other um, projects as well that have nothing to do with sexuality and nudity. Um, but these projects, they have in a way been about trying to make these questions explicit and to kind of approach them head on and see what, what actually happens in the experience um, that the audience can have where they maybe also have to negotiate this position of being voyeurs or being in a place where desire is, is put into to question but also put into activity, of course. And historically, dance was one of the artistic practices that was often censored. Do you ever think there is that censorship ever has a place in art? I still no. I'm I'm one hundred percent against censorship because for me, art is um, in a way. I mean, um, there can you can have taste discussions about art, you can also have ethical discussions about art, you can have political discussions about art and whether this art is okay or not, but to censor it for me is not an option because it goes against the freedom of expression and also against the, the fact that many of the things that people address in art are actually entirely happening in the world. They exist, they are there, they are just not exposed in an explicit way and when they become exposed in ways that governments don't want to have exposed, for instance, then censorship comes into play. But I think for this, so as for a democratic society, I think censorship is very, very, very complicated. Mm. Um, and we also know that the censorship is still very active in certain places in the world today, of course. Um, and I think it, it proposes a lot of uh, issues in relation to democracy, which I, I can't... Um, I don't find has a place uh, in uh, in democratic societies. But then, uh, no, I think actually it's much more interesting to see like where where does something come from? And then I, I like there are, for instance, now um, no. Anyway, yeah. It's, I mean, art is that place where we can have these difficult conversations with a level of safety 
um, and with the ability to talk about some hard things or, I guess, be exposed to different ideas or different belief systems than our own. Can we talk a little bit about your PhD and what it was about? Um, Because you did a PhD. When did you finish that? That was... October 2016. Yeah, okay. So you're on the other side. So what was your PhD about? Well, it's one of these artistic PhDs, so it was about my work. Um, but I made two books, and it was connected to two series of works. And the first series was called the Artificial Nature Series. And the second one was called The Red Pieces that I'm still busy with. So it was, uh, in a way, corresponding to a shift also in my work. And so what I try to articulate in the first um, book or in the first strand of work has to do with thinking about how to make choreography for non-humans and how to get beyond a kind of anthropocentric um, perspective on choreography where the dancing body is always in the center of attention and also in theater in general where the human body is is the center and the materials and the objects and the things, um, the effects, the smoke and the light is only effects that are there to enhance the presence of the performer. And what I tried to do was basically to try to find a different place where the agency of non-humans or things, materials, of um, objects would also exist on stage. And I, I searched for that in many different ways. So I made different pieces, one with com- completely devoid of human presence, only working with um, making kind of landscapes out of materials, uh, like smoke and foam and bubbles and light and sound. And uh, in yeah, another um, part where I was working um, with these silver particles to create also an artificial uh, landscape. Um, yeah, so that's in short. And then after doing that for quite some years, I got to the point of needing to deeply come back to the human body and also in a way come back to some strands of my own work, which had to do with thinking really about the the most intimate levels um, of the human body, so sexuality and its politics. And so the second, the second, let's say, um, part, because there's two books, the second part is in a, like a counter uh, image to the first one, where, um, yeah, where I made this, let's say, lecture performance that also looks at the history of sexuality, that looks at the context within which performances where nudity was used, what kind of context they were made in in the 1960s, in the US mainly, Um, but also looking back at my own work, um, dealing with nudity and sexuality, uh, as well as thinking about sexual practices in general today and where we are at in relation to that. Are these books going to be public? They were, they are, but they're out of print. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's it like looking back on that journey like that? Did it shift your practice? I think it did do a lot, actually. I think it uh, gave me time to think and to go deep in a completely different way. Um, though I thought I would produce less, I did produce more things than ever. So it did not really have the expected effect to withdraw and to think, but it was a, it was a very active time of uh, thinking and studying and making. Um, and I think it has changed how I think about research also and how I 
think about giving place to the part of work, which is not actually when you're exactly making it, but also the whole um, preparation period and the whole thinking process and the whole um, discussion process with other people and how this also is, of course, a social process where you engage with other people um, to try to articulate concerns. And and this, I think, I I found a different way of, of handling that in my work. And also I started making these... Um, Performances where I speak, which I didn't do before. Yeah, cool. So language kind of came into it also. Um, so it has done quite, yeah, quite some changes to my my actual artistic work as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, what's happening in the future? What's on for the rest of the year? Well, I'm currently starting to work on, on something new. I also spent five years now working on, on these questions around sexuality, and I feel like I've been in all the different corners of the, the question. So right now I'm, I'm starting to look in a different uh, direction. And uh, right now I'm interested or busy with thinking about technology and the body's relationship to technology and how the body's relationship to technology is transforming the social, so how we are together in, in the social um, space. Uh, and much more I don't really know yet because I'm just starting, so it's quite a, a new project. And I start researching on it already in August, but it's only for the year after. It's, I have lots of time to think and... Uh, and develop it further but it feels like a, a new direction that I'm very much looking forward to dive into thank you for listening you can find a list of links on the website delvingintodance.com you can also subscribe on iTunes you can follow on Facebook and on Twitter if you love these episodes please show your support by leaving a review on iTunes or on Facebook if you want to show a little bit more support please consider contributing financially. Help support this project that reflects the diversity of the dance sector. It is important to acknowledge the latest donor. Big thank you to Tom Halls for your significant contribution. We would also like to acknowledge the support of the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, take care.